0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivibani. As we all know, trust in science has diminished in the U.S. during COVID due to disinformation campaigns and politically motivated attacks on leading professionals and organizations in the field. Perhaps no one is more engaged in turning this around than Maya Ajmira, who is the president and CEO of the Society for Science and publisher of Science News. As president for the last eight years, Maya's reinvigorated the 100-year-old society, raising millions of dollars to bolster its science competitions and publications, and to reach more underserved STEM students in the United States and beyond. Her resume is quite amazing. She's held positions in entrepreneurship and public policy at prestigious institutions such as Duke and Johns Hopkins, and is the recipient of numerous awards and fellowships. Maya was recently elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and in 2020, she received the National Science Board Public Service Award. And as if that weren't enough, Maya is also the founder of the Global Fund for Children and an award-winning children's book author of more than 20 titles with millions of readers worldwide. On a personal note, what got me first interested in science and education, which ultimately eventually led to the co-founding of Osmosis, was my own participation in competitions that the Society for Science produced, including the Intel previously the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair, now the Regeneron ICEF competition, as well as many other science fair opportunities. And I've had the pleasure to get to know Maya and her colleagues at the Society for Science over the last several years as an alumnus. So Maya, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today.
1: Shiv, it's always a pleasure to talk with you.
0: Awesome. And so, you know, I obviously know a lot about your background in the Society for Science, but for our audience's sake, would you mind telling them a little bit about your career highlights and how you got interested in the sciences?
1: Sure. So I am the daughter of Indian immigrants, grew up in Eastern North Carolina, and started doing science fair projects when I was in sixth grade. I had the wonderful opportunity to work in a botany lab at East Carolina University and did a project on duckweeds, the growth of duckweeds, which is a plant that is very high in protein and can be a future source of food. And that just got me on my science fair journey. And then did a Microbiology project in high school that led me to compete in the science talent search, then called the Westinghouse Science Talent Search. So I was really on my way to do an MD PhD. I was a biology major with a concentration in neuroscience.
0: Wow, I knew you had done science fairs, but didn't know the exact project. So thanks for sharing that. And I remember personally, you know, I think 2004 was the first science fair I did at ICEF, and attending the Nobel laureate panel with people like Dudley Hirschback, who wound up being a, a good mentor of mine in college, Nobel laureate in chemistry. there's so many things that ICEF and the Society for Science does that are extremely good for young scientists who eventually become Nobel laureates or entrepreneurs. What would you add to the brief description I gave of the Society for Science in terms of defining its core mission? Did I capture it, or would you like to share with our audience more?
1: Sure. So the Society for Science is known for three things. It's known for our award-winning magazine, Science News. It's known for our world-class science research competitions, which include the Regeneron Science Talent Search, which has been around for over 80 years, the Regeneron International Science and Engineering Fair, which has been around since 1950, and the Broadcom Masters, our middle school STEM competition we also have a suite of outreach and equity programs. We want to make sure that every young person in this country can grow up to be a scientist or engineer if that's what they want to be when they grow up.
0: That's pretty comprehensive. And again, I know many people who have benefited from that. I think the movie, October Sky, popularized ICEF with Homer Hickam, who is the main protagonist, actually participating in one of the science fairs that the Society for Science put on. So you have a really impressive list of alumni. I'm curious, how do you engage the alumni at the Society for Science? And do you have any stats on how many alumni there are at this point?
1: So at the Society for Science, we have over 70,000 alumni. These alumni have gone on to become world-class scientists, engineers, Entrepreneurs, innovators. They founded publicly traded companies. They have gone on to win MacArthur Awards, Nobel Prizes, breakthrough prizes. What's really fun right now is to see how many young people are founding companies. You know, right out of ISAF, you know, a quarter of the young people at the International Science and Engineering Fair, which just ended last week a quarter of them are patent or patent ready. And so that is really inspiring about taking their research and innovations to the market, frankly. But we also are seeing incredible alumni who are professors and teachers and doctors. And just our goal is to make sure that every young person that's part of the Society for Science really looks to solving the world's most intractable problems because we have a lot of big problems we need to solve.
0: Absolutely. And from a personal perspective, I mentioned, you know, I got into science fairs through the Society for Science and the Public, as it was called before, and many of the same skills that make you successful in science fairs or in science research, skills like tenacity, presentation skills, both oral and written, being able to, as a 14 or 15 year old, talk to Nobel laureates who are asking you questions about your project and stand your ground because you're an expert and you know your project in and out. These are qualities that you know, fast forward 10, 15, 20 years, as you get into the workforce, I've personally found really exciting you just replace the judges with venture capitalists or folks like that. So I think it's doing amazing work. And I, I think one interesting thing would be looking at like the market capitalization of all the companies that have come out of people who... That's
1: a great idea.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> Silverman's an example. He He's a founder, co-founder and CEO of Pinterest. And I know he did science fairs and the Research Science Institute, which I did as well you know, there's so many people who go on to these different fields, engineering, physicians, entrepreneurs. What are some of the highlights, things you're most excited about that the Society for Science has done in your eight year tenure?
1: Well, I would say the thing I'm most excited about is our suite of outreach and equity programs. We have a mentorship program called the Advocate Program that really supports teachers and mentors to create a posse of students who are doing scientific research, underserved students, but getting them on the road to science competition. We have high school research teachers conferences that bring in high school teachers to learn how to build a research program in their high school. We also have science news in high schools, which is really building scientific literacy across the United States. And that's the first piece of the work, right? So we're in over 5,500 high schools right now where science news is being used in the classroom.
0: Wow. Well, that's a, a really comprehensive way to approach the issue. And so you also mentioned we're recording this podcast a week after ISEF, which I think took place in Atlanta this year. Right. Can you talk to us a bit about how that went this past week? And even if there are you know, any highlights in terms of participation, I think before the podcast, we were hearing that Ukrainian students even participated.
1: Yes, it was incredible to be back. So since COVID, 2020 and 2021, we were online. In 2020, we did not have a competition. We just had an online program. In 2021, we had a global online competition. This year, we were 70% of the finalists were back, 30% were online. So it was a hybrid model. We gave out our biggest purse. We gave out nearly $8 million in awards. And the projects were just extraordinary, but what was most important was just the passion and enthusiasm and energy of these finalists of being back together. They found their people, they found their people, right? And these are friendships that last for a very, very long time. It was also just extraordinary to have the Ukrainian delegation compete virtually. And we're so pleased to say that two of the Ukrainian finalists won awards on the grand award stage.
0: That's amazing. And I can definitely attest to the friendships that you form uh, through these competitions. Uh, One of my good friends from high school science fairs, Scott Commoners, who I know you know well, He's now a tenured professor at Harvard Business School. Really interesting group of alumni that you guys have cultivated and, and helped get on their careers. Going to a macro perspective, obviously, Society for Science focuses on K-12 primarily. Obviously, there's work that's done outside of that as well. But you know, as a society, I think there's been a lot of erosion in the trust in scientists and science as a whole. Do you have any recommendations for how we can restore that trust, at maybe even starting with students?
1: Sure. So, you know, the Society for Science is celebrating its 100th anniversary, we're 100 years old. And we were started with Science News. And our co founder, E.W. Scripps, at that time was very worried about reading newspaper articles that were incorrect, you know, three legged Martians. He said, we need to create a new cadre of science journalism, new cadre of science journalists. And that's what he did when he co founded Science News. And Science News 100 years old is a consumer science magazine, one of the top three or four magazines in the country, where we produce evidence-based content around the breakthroughs of science. We're one of the few newsrooms left in the United States of science beat journalists, actually. But getting back to this idea of scientific literacy, you have to start young. You have to start in your public school systems, and you have to start with great content. One of the things we heard from teachers is that the content they were using was old. They have old textbooks that are almost two decades old or a decade old. Science is moving at a breakneck speed. Or they didn't trust what they were reading online. So science news in high schools has really helped Fill a hole of getting great content for high school teachers and, and students to read and be inspired. And we have to do more of that, frankly. And you have to start young.
0: Absolutely. And you know, not just the scientific literacy, but also it's it's such good fodder for people's careers. It was actually in the Science News article where I, I read about tissue printing, organ printing, and bioengineering, which got me interested in that field. And eventually I'd be, you know, that was my first science project, the first big one uh, where I went to ICEF with it. So I think there's a lot of good ramifications by producing this content. Speaking of content, you know, Osmosis obviously is a health education company. We're focused on training current and future healthcare professionals. Since we're a teaching company, we like to fill in knowledge gaps. And I'm curious if there was one topic or one course that you could snap your fingers and develop and every high school student could take it or medical student, what would it be and why?
1: I would say science communication, if you're a medical student, how do you communicate the science to your patient, to your community, right? In a way that's understandable. Brilliant ways of learning how to communicate science to the lay public is one. Two, I would say the idea of the pandemic has been such a big part of our lives the past two years working on educational videos that really explain the science behind the pandemic to high school students in a video topic would be so fabulous, I think, because they're reading a lot, but can they hear it and see it in an animated way or in a way that gets them, ah, you know, this makes sense. And kids learn in very different ways, right? So you want to be able to get great content that kids can read. But they also need to see great images and they also need to see great videos.
0: Totally. Yeah. And they're very used to YouTube and TikTok and multimedia like that. So uh, 100% agreed. And that's great. We should follow up with you guys on that. There's over 70,000 alumni for the Society for Science, so I know you personally interact with many young students and give them career advice, whether it's your plenaries at these competitions or just in other formats, the children's books too, which I'd love to get more info on. What's your advice to our audience? Many of them are going to be future healthcare professionals or already are healthcare professionals about meeting the challenges of the COVID pandemic and beyond and approaching their careers.
1: So let me take a step back. When I talk to young people, when I say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, that's the wrong question. It's like, what problem do you want to solve? Right? What problem do you want to solve? Because once you know the problem you want to solve, then everything kind of falls into place. So here are the courses I want to take. Right? And I think it's the same for medical students is what problem Gets you excited. You know, who is the type of patient you want to serve, right? What is the disease that's most interesting to you? And you don't get so narrowly focused, right? It's more of the problem that that you're looking to solve. But with healthcare providers, I would say with this pandemic, right? I think what's going to happen is how do we manage post pandemic related illnesses, right? Whether it's mental health, whether it's long COVID, whether it's putting off health care because of COVID. And it's also about equity. What COVID did was really amplify the inequities in our healthcare system and really show where people are hurting and where the healthcare system could be doing a better job in reaching those that need it the most.
0: That's really, really great advice there, especially the, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up being replaced by what problem do you want to solve? Because ultimately, you know, you could be an engineer solving a healthcare problem. You could be a journalist solving the infodemic problem, as opposed to just kind of being one identity, especially as people are living longer and careers change quite a bit, like your identity changes. So that's really, really insightful. You wear a lot of hats. Obviously you run the Society for Science as president but you also are an award-winning children's author with many books. Can you talk to us a bit about that?
1: Sure. So as I say, there's the right brain, left brain thing. I just love putting together children's books where children see similarities with each other versus differences. And I started this journey in 1994 of writing my first children's book, and I've continued on that. And I love visual images, so we use visual images with great text to really bring in from board books, which is for zero to two-year-olds, to picture books that really talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how we're really connected to one another and really focus on the similarities versus our differences.
0: I love that. I mean, especially in this age where DEI is very important, though I think a lot of DEI initiatives do tend to focus on the divisions and the things that make us different as opposed to the things that make us the same and celebrate those too. So I think that's really important. I know we're coming up in time, so I have two last questions for you. The first is for our audience, medical students, practicing professionals, et cetera, if they wanted to engage with the society, what would your recommendation be for them to contribute?
1: So one is, I would say, become a member of the society because that in itself gives you access to our great events and our great talks by great thinkers, but it also gives you access to science news, right? Go to sciencenews.org or become a member and get the magazine at home. It's fabulous. So that's one way. The second way is, you know, get in touch with us in in a way that if you're looking for a great speaker or a great thinker who could come speak at your medical school or your place of work, let us know. And we can actually point you to somebody maybe in your community because our alums are everywhere.
0: Absolutely. I mean, uh, one example is, I didn't even know this was an alum of yours, but Dr. Daniel Durand, who's the chief clinical officer at Lifebridge Health and did Science Talent Search and was one of our partners at Osmosis. So I agree with both of those. And hopefully even uh, one thing I would add is mentoring. If you're made all the way to med school or residency or practice, you're a faculty member at a nursing school or medical school, try to be a mentor for a potential generation student or a high school student. That's great. My last question, is there anything else you wanna share with our audience about the society, yourself, macro trends in science or, or information, et cetera?
1: I would say that I think one of the biggest challenges facing our country right now is scientific literacy and excellent science journalism is a core to our democracy, that's one. Two, we have to keep nurturing the next generation of innovators because we live in a global economy our country has been the leading edge, right, of innovation, and we have to continue that. And if we're going to continue to be the leader, then we have to invest in all young people to be the next generation of innovators. Raj Chetty, who is a alum of ISEF and STS, he is a MacArthur Prize winner. He wrote the very famous paper about the lost Einsteins, and he talks about the STEM deserts in this country how those are correlated of parents who are doing things that are engineers or innovators and how there's a high level that happens with students as well. It doesn't happen in a lot of places and that's where the investment needs to occur. So I would say Let's invest in the next generation of innovators and let's make sure every single person in this country is scientifically literate.
0: I love that. That's a great thing to end on. Well, Maya, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us on the podcast and more importantly for the work that you and your colleagues at the Society for Science do to improve scientific literacy and motivate and inspire the next generation of scientists, engineers, and other people who contribute to our society.
1: Well, Shift, thank you so much. And like I said, as you are one of our alums, and just how incredibly proud we are of you and your success with osmosis and all that you do to make the world a better place. So thank you.
0: That means a lot. Thanks so much. And with that, I'm Shivulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line. We're all in this together. Take care.